Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And that brings us uh, to step three. Uh, understand the impact uh, of my suffering. Um, it, uh, and understanding the impact. You know, in step two, uh, we acknowledge the raw data. We did an evaluation. We said, what are the things that we're doing? Uh, we looked at those two wheels and we said, what are the patterns within this relationship? Uh, we tried to look at the data and Step three, we ask, what are the ways that things like this affect us? And so we'll look at maybe five general qualities of codependency. Uh, Now, not all of these are involved in in every situation that that might be considered codependent. Uh, But I think they're a a good rubric to say, how many of these things are happening uh, in my life? Uh, One uh, is the inability or unwillingness to rightly allocate uh, responsibility. Uh, And so if you're going through this as a journey, then in step three, you will be able to look back to step one. um, And you would have been keeping some charts for a while. And you'd have those three columns of when something difficult happens, what's my responsibility, what's my loved one's responsibility, what's outside of either of our control. And you could look back and begin to ask yourself, Uh, Who are the people that I expect too little or too much from? Uh, Who is it that I allow to expect too much or too little from me? Uh, What responsibilities have I taken on that are not mine? Uh, What life systems have emerged from that? Um, How has that built a sense of entitlement in others? Um, You know, what conflicts frequently emerge around this? Uh, All of those things are the impact of not rightly allocating responsibility. And we want to be able to articulate that better. Uh, We'll get to how to correct it a bit more in step four and even more in step seven. Now, another thing that often happens with codependency uh, is we become overly involved in the life of others. When we don't allocate responsibility well, which usually means we let some people get away with things that they shouldn't get away from. We take some of those column two things, and we go, okay, I'll take care of it, I'll put it in column one. And so that leaves us being overly involved in the lives of others. Uh, And one of two patterns emerges from that. Uh, Either we are controlling, and we don't usually like that word because we think controlling has to mean with malice aforethought. Controlling doesn't have to mean malice aforethought. It just means we let other people do less and we agree even non-verbally to do more and so we're in charge of more of their life uh, than we should be. And so when we don't do what they want us to do, then there's a sense in which we're being controlling and they get mad at us and we go, how did that happen? Uh, Or the other side of that is reactive. Uh, where we can't plan or prepare for anything because we just know our life has to be on hold for whatever crisis that they're going to make next, and and we are overly involved in a reactive way. Now, um, another facet 
uh, is uh, it impairs our ability to regulate or moderate our emotions. Uh, when we're saying that something to be of a codependent nature is usually at that level of addiction or abuse, uh, we're saying that that's a, a trauma level influence in our life. And when you go through trauma, one of the things that you frequently lose is a sense that things can be a little bad. You know, when you go through a trauma like uh, an earthquake or some other kind of major disaster, you just brace. There's no little bad. Things, you need to brace for real bad. And when you begin to live in such a way that there are no little bads, then the little bad get big bad responses. And people might say you're frequently overreacting. Then there's the perpetual sense of failure, but unwillingness to give up. Because I'm trying to manage things that aren't mine, all I can do is fail. You know, if we set up an experiment uh, where you were playing a video game and, and you thought your controller was controlling what was going on on the screen, and yet this is one of those prank experiments where somebody behind you has got a different controller uh, and they're actually playing it and they model what's supposed to happen for a while and then they mess it up and you can't figure out that, that's codependency. We think that my controller and their life, that's what's making them, and if I just do what I'm supposed to do, then they're going to do what they're supposed to do. That's not what's going on. And, and so we're set up to fail. But because we love them, we won't give up. And so we keep playing the video game and we bang it on the table and we yell at it and we do all kinds of stuff trying to make it do what it's supposed to do. Uh, and we get caught in that trap. And then we neglect self-care. Uh, we talked about that. Uh, there are some effects uh, that are maybe uh, unique to abuse. Um, it, uh, and abuse is one of those things that the effects of abuse last long after the event of abuse. So in that sense, abuse is more like a house fire than it is a cigarette burn. Uh, a cigarette burn just hurts. Uh, and it may leave a scar, but the consequences aren't that bad. Uh, a house fire, uh, it, it destroys memories. It burns pictures. It, uh, it changes a lot more. Uh, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb uh, talks a little bit about this. Say, children who witness um, the, uh, the abuse often experience their mother's powerlessness and humiliation. Uh, many lose their childhood innocence because of the sense of security has been violated and they feel dramatically unsafe. Children often develop anxiety in, in anticipation of the next attack. They blame themselves for the abuse, uh, fear abandonment especially uh, if they should fail to keep the violent secret. Uh, they are left isolated and frightened uh, as they carry the weight of shame, responsibility, guilt, and anger. And so what are some of the effects of abuse? Uh, well, there's the physical pain. And if you'll let me say it this way, uh, oftentimes um, the physical pain may be the most tangible, but it's the least impactful. Uh, at least when it's non-life-threatening. Bruises will heal. People can see bruises and ask you how you're doing. They make sense. They're proportional to the event. They correspond with the event in time. 
these other things aren't proportional, they don't correspond in time, they're much less tangible. Uh, so there's the emotional pain. You know, there's the fear of when this is going to happen again, the guilt because I get blamed for all of it, the shame because I don't want people to know that I'm going through this, the anger that I feel because this is not right, the sense of going crazy because my emotions are all over the place and this person doesn't seem to acknowledge or they do acknowledge and they really cry and get upset, but then they do it again um, and just despair. And, and so it winds up feeling very chaotic. That's why Justin and Lindsay Holcomb would say one of the most important things to know about the impact of abuse is that these mood swings and dysfunctions are a natural and normal way of dealing with trauma. Unfortunately, many people look at these symptoms and think that the problem lies with the victim, uh, when in fact these responses to trauma are perfectly normal. Uh, one way I've heard trauma described that I think is accurate, um, the responses of trauma or a normal response to an abnormal circumstance. Uh, and this kind of emotional disruption uh, is why so much of the material that we look at later uh, will be about emotional regulation. So there's physical pain, emotional pain, uh, relational confusion. Um, you know, again, if I were going to describe an abusive relationship, it's like playing a sporting event where your team has to play by the rules but the other team doesn't. And so you keep trying to figure out what's going on, and you think, okay, I've got it. This is how the game goes. And whatever it is that would make the game fair gets changed whenever it's to your advantage. Uh, and so double bind uh, may be one of the more helpful categories that I've come across to understand. And double binds are things we all do all the time. Um, but the classic double bind is when you've got a husband and wife, they're going through some financial times, and one person, maybe not in the same moment, but uh, the same spouse looks at the other and says, I, I think you need to work more so that we can pay off the debt faster. I want to spend more time with you. Both of those things are legitimate. They just don't get along. And so oftentimes in abusive relationships, in any given moment, what's being asked for um, is, um, is legitimate. But it just doesn't get along with other things that are being asked for. And there's hell to pay when you can't make the puzzle work. Um, mood instability. Uh, the less stable their emotions, the less predictable uh, they are. Uh, impulsivity. Uh, when somebody is willing to cross the line of being abusive, that's a highly self-centered person. And self-centered people are highly desire-driven. And so it just makes sense that there's going to be a degree of impulsivity. Uh, rigidity. They want what they want, and they want it now. And no amount uh, of excuse uh, is, is going to be okay with that. Uh, tumultuous relationships. Uh, and, and here, just saying that it's hard for a primary relationship to be an upheaval and your other relationships to be stable. Because what's going on here in this relationship being bonded enough that you will stay committed to it in the midst of all of this pain and brokenness, it's going to influence your emotions. 
which spill out over here. It's going to influence your level of trust and relational habits um, that spill over into here. Uh, there's going to be events that you have to explain and begin to lie about or minimize that are going to affect these other relationships. And so it's going to affect um, other relationships. Uh, the recency effect. We'll talk about identity in a moment. Uh, the recency effect in abusive relationships, uh, the only thing that matters is now. And so you can be in a moment, and, and things have been going, uh, and this is in a healthy situation outside of the, the abusive relationship, and things have been going good for a while, and something goes wrong, and all of a sudden you respond as if that one thing is a crisis. And the world's falling apart. Because in an abusive relationship, what you learn is the only thing that matters is right now. And there's no sense of contextualization in which I interpret uh, my circumstances. Uh, and that's because usually to the impulsive, rigid uh, person who is willing to be abusive, all that matters to them is now uh, and we begin to live to appease them. Um, spiritual confusion. There's lots of God questions that come up when we go through intense suffering like that. Um, and oftentimes in these relationships, uh, Scripture and God and the church uh, are brought in uh, in manipulative ways. Uh, and so that creates a lot of spiritual confusion. Uh, distorted self-image. You know, this is one of those areas where usually we can say, there is nothing in my life that I have tried so hard to make succeed and seen fail so much. And for something to be so important and for us to try that hard and it to fail, it's very hard for that not to begin to impact our sense of identity, uh, our sense of personal competence. Uh, and in the midst of all of this, one of the things that we begin to see is that the coping mechanisms that we create to survive in this setting, they make sense. Uh, that's what Melanie Beatty, she says. She says, all codependent behaviors make sense if traced back to their origins. Uh, the behaviors associated with codependency from control to caretaking are behaviors that saved our lives when we didn't know what else to do. And that explains our fierce loyalty to these behaviors. They were life skills. They may have been life and death skills. And they work really well in a dysfunctional environment. But you take them out of that dysfunctional environment and we find ourselves in healthier relational environments and we start trying to make those same rules work and all of a sudden they begin to distort and disrupt uh, these other relationships. And we... We don't always understand why that is. Um, now, what are some of the effects of living with addiction? Um, again, each of these is understandable, uh, but they're not sustainable. Uh, false optimism. We just want to believe that things are going to get better. Uh, we don't want to think that it's going to continue in the direction that it's going. Uh, we nag and plead. And again, I'll give you just a difference between, what's the difference between nagging and reminding? Uh, nagging is repeating something that somebody doesn't want to know. Reminding 
is repeating something that somebody does want to know. And so, uh, and again, it doesn't mean that the activity is any more or less good or bad. Um, but the difference between nagging and reminding is whether or not the person wants to know the information or do anything about it. Uh, forcing our help, uh, accepting blame shifting, uh, speaking for people. And this is not just for the addict. Uh, usually at this point, we just don't have any more margin in our lives for anything else to go wrong. And so just as a way to circumvent and try to prevent that from happening, uh, we will, we will over-speak into other people's lives just out of this form of self-protection. Uh, but when we over-speak for others, we often don't want to say what we need, so we under-speak for ourselves and we get this passive-aggressive mindset that if I'm paying this much attention to what's going on in everybody else's life, they should return the favor and do that for me. They should just know. Um, Making excuses. I'm sorry, needy giving. Uh, again, here, giving is a good thing. Um, but when we give in order to try to get somebody to do something back for us, that's a prime example of what we were saying, that codependency is not about what we do. It's about how and why we do it. And one of those patterns that begin to emerge is indirect communication. Uh, in a dysfunctional environment, it doesn't feel safe to name things directly. And so you kind of drop hints and assume and you do things around the edges and, and, and you just, you kind of, you hope and then expect later when your feelings are hurt that they should have picked up on that. Um, the social changes of isolation, um, it, um, again, the more we cut out other relationships, the larger and larger percentage of our life, this broken relationship becomes. So if I've got nine healthy friends, and then I've got this relationship marked by dysfunction, uh, just by percentage of friends, uh, this person represents 10% of my friendship base. If in trying to rescue and save this person, uh, I lose seven, uh, this person is now 20, um, 25%. It and as I allow myself to become isolated, they become a larger and larger percentage. Now you might ask, what do I do with this? And the most important thing uh, is to resist a temptation towards shame. Oftentimes we see this and our head immediately wants to go down and we think, oh, this is so right, this is what I do, it's bad, it's awful, this is why I didn't want to come. Um, we resist shame. And we say, we didn't cause these things. We are responsible for how we respond to them. And unless we learn to respond differently, these effects will continue to be our life. Um, but we can learn to respond to them differently, uh, and they can become less and less our life, and that's what this study is about. Um, now, one other area that Christians can get all bent out of shape about is how do we think about boundaries? Because, uh, you know, you got some people, they just love the idea of boundaries, and other people, they don't like it at all. And usually the people who love it say, look, Christians don't have to be doormats. That is not part of our theology. And the people who hate it, they go, but Jesus crossed all boundaries uh, to love us in the midst of while we were still enemies. He crossed all boundaries to love us, and we're supposed to love people like Christ loves the church. So what do we do with boundaries? Uh, I want to give you four principles uh, that I hope help you think well. Uh, that as we're getting better 
at naming these things that are unhealthy and how do we back up while facing forward. These principles here, uh, I hope, help us think about that well. Uh, The first is that when we think about boundaries well, the boundary is not being placed between us and another person. It's being placed between wisdom and folly. Uh, I'm not rejecting you. I'm just refusing to participate in your foolishness. Uh, And so if you insist on living foolishly, you will live on the other side of my boundary. Um, And so that takes us to the second principle, which when we communicate boundaries well, they're an invitation, not rejection. Uh, In that moment where I am saying, that is not something that I am willing to do. I am inviting you to live on this side of the wisdom line. And I really want you to do that. And in some sense, if, if you've ever been trained for lifeguarding, uh, I took a lifeguarding class, I was never actually a lifeguard because this part of the training scarred me. Um, it, but when you go to lifeguard uh, training and they say, look, if, if somebody's out there and they're in the water and they're flailing and you don't have something to throw to them, do not swim out there to them. Really? I thought that was like our job to save people. Well, if you go out there, you don't have something to throw them, and they're flailing, and you come along, what are they going to do as soon as you get out there? They're going to wrap you. Arms and legs, they're going to pin your uh, arms to your side, your legs together, and two people are going to drown. And so you wait until they stop flailing, and then you go swim out to them at that point and try to resuscitate them at that point. But if you don't have something to throw, that's all you can do. And so at that point, what we're doing is a boundary is throwing a buoy out there of saying, hey, I want you to join me here. I, I am willing to love you in wisdom. I am not willing to love you in foolishness. And, and if they're flailing, uh, then we're going to have to wait to a time when, when they're not flailing uh, to come out there. And so third principle uh, Sometimes we mistake boundaries for walls and we start putting up walls. That's not healthy. Sometimes we do fake walls and we give the silent treatment or we're deceitful, we just say everything's fine when it's not. Uh, Or we put up more safe walls, uh, anger, uh, fearfulness. Uh, And these are much more a matter of... um, they, they don't protect us from folly as much as they just make our relationships inauthentic. And, and usually that's where people come back later and go, you weren't honest with me. You didn't tell me the truth. Uh, and as Ed Welch would say, one problem with masks and walls is that though their purpose is to protect you from hurt, uh, they hurt you even more because they don't allow for relationships. And these become the kind of patterns that we don't just engage with in the unhealthy relationship. They become our pattern for lots of other relationships because we didn't back up while facing forward. We fortified. Uh, And when we fortify, everybody's on the outside. Uh, And last principle, um, when we use the term boundaries, we need to distinguish between felt needs and real needs. It... Uh, Because boundaries are only really needed in unsafe context, uh, our instincts uh, is going to become increasingly fearful when we think about them. Uh, We 
we use the idea of boundaries to protect from real needs. That doesn't mean felt needs are unimportant. Um, but when we're in the context of a relationship uh, where it is already proving itself destructive, that this person's degree of selfishness and self-centeredness is great enough that we're having to consider these types of strategies to get this relationship where it needs to be, for us to begin to think about felt needs, which are important, in that context, it, we need to be pursuing that in these other uh, support network, community of care relationships that we said we weren't going to let wither away. And the focus in this relationship that is marked by some destructive patterns needs to be much more about those most tangible, real needs uh, because that, uh, that's probably the only thing that's not going to be spoofed away as us being uh, too sensitive or too emotional, too fragile, uh, whatever it may be. And so, again, the last part here uh, is a tool to help us uh, with self-awareness. Because as we think about the impact uh, one of the things that we often lose uh, as we become reactive and there are all of this emotional disruption uh, is we lose a sense of where we're at emotionally. Uh, and people say, are you upset? No, I'm not upset. Um, <laughs> well, it kind of sounds like it. Um, and we, we don't want to acknowledge where we are until we're well past uh, where we should be. Uh, and so another one of those tools uh, that's kind of modified and adapted from the resources that we went through is uh, a self-awareness instrument. Uh, and it just has you monitoring uh, four areas. Um, you know, your motivation uh, and your energy level, that kind of being one thing. Uh, where am I at with that? Where is my sense of optimism? Uh, where's my sense of self-care? How am I doing in those areas? Uh, what is my emotional state and how honest am I being about that? Here's the goal for this. Using that tool as a point of reflection on a regular basis so that you pick up on code yellow and code orange, not just code red, so that you pick up on it in order to share it with people who can be a part of your support network. So that when you can say, I, you know, my level of motivation, I'm not ready to give up, but I feel like giving up. If I sit in that by myself, that's just going to be nasty. The aloneness of that is going to add to the despair. When I share that with somebody who understands what's going on, that can be a huge help. Uh, and so the goal of an instrument like this, kind of at this stage where we're starting to pick up on the things that are going on and how this experience affects us, uh, is for us to, earlier in the process, from code red to code orange to code yellow, to raise our self-awareness so that we can share that with another person who can become part of our support network.